Welcome everyone to this week's Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, And once again, we're here with Michael Smith. Michael, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Wayne. Good, good, to, good to hear your face, so to speak. So, well, the, the good thing is this is not last week in Texas. This is the last two weeks in Texas because you had to take some time off last week to do your day job and actually try a case. We did. We had a uh, patent infringement trial in Judge Gilstrap's court across the street here in Marshall. And uh, so it, it was a good week. We got a jury verdict back of non-infringement, uh, claims valid, but non-infringement uh, last Thursday. And uh, since I lost one over there in November, <laughs> I, had, I had almost forgotten how good winning one felt. But uh, I was very proud of it, very happy with our trial team in that case. It's one of the, the problems with with trial work, if you only try one every six months, you get, uh, seems like six months to stew on a loss. In about 10 days after the win, you just go back to work and you've, you've lost that high. So there's more downside than upside. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, tell us what you what you learned in this, this trial. Well, it was an interesting trial. Uh, I kind of got parachuted in a couple of weeks before trial on it which is not my preference, but my co-counsel had done a good job preparing it, which isn't surprising because the case was eight years old. This was a uh, fight between two uh, oil and gas drilling companies uh, shortly after it was filed in 2014 because the Eastern District was so short on judges. Uh, judge Gilstrap shipped a couple dozen cases to a judge in Houston, Judge Atlas, and she worked up the case over the next seven years. There were some stays, there were some other things and then shipped it back when it was ready for trial. So when we went to trial, we had expert reports that were over two years old and everything had been prepared before a different judge. So Judge Payne was uh, ruled on some final motions and then we went to, went to trial, but on reports that were over two years old. So that was, that was interesting. The, the most important thing that I learned in the trial, which I knew, but, but it's never been more important than in this case is, uh, the judges that try patent cases down here are very, very strict on your expert has to stay within the four corners of their report. And in this case, we were fortunate that the plaintiff's infringement experts report was only 15 pages long. So we actually had Judge Gilstrap excluding some things at trial, uh, and we had the unique situation where, you know those boards we always put up that has all the claim elements and your expert can I check this off, sir? Yes. Can I check this off? Okay. All the boxes are checked now. So does this mean there's infringement? Yes, it does. The expert actually couldn't check all the boxes in half of the claims, which is something you don't normally get. So when by the time we got to closing argument, we were able to pull out the, the uh, boards and say, you never heard an expert testify on this and, and uh, that, that helped out uh, a lot when it came time for the jury to look at it. In Marshall, you cannot talk to the jurors after the trial. It is completely up to them whether to talk to you. So the judge explains, Mr. Smith and, and the other lawyers are going to be standing at the bottom of the rail outside the front door, and you can walk right past them. They won't approach you. They won't try to engage you. But if you want to talk to them, you can. Well, I was fortunate that one of the jurors put her stuff up in her car and then came back and gave us a download for 30 minutes on what we'd done right, what we'd done wrong. We had lead counsel. We had our expert there uh, who was a, a professor from Baylor who had not testified previously. And she was explaining to him what a cheetah 
pipe was. Um, it was kind of fun watching a juror explain to an expert the, the technical aspects of oil and gas, but it happened that she knew that. Uh, but anyway, she was very helpful explaining the things that we did that were useful and the things that we did were not useful, which experts were good, which experts were not good. And um, uh, we asked her about objections. Uh, we asked her if she minded, well, did you mind when, when the lawyers made objections that bother you? And she said, oh, no, no, no. That gave us a little break because we could stop paying attention for a couple of minutes while the, while the judge dealt with you. Well, I'd never heard a, judge, a jury say that before, so that was, that was an interesting thing. But it, it was a very uh, educational experience. Um, we went back to a little bit more strict COVID protocols than we've had recently. And Judge Gilstrap told us on Monday we'll be using the same protocols next month. So uh, every trial's a little different, but, but this was definitely a fun one. I didn't have to cross the well and congratulate everybody on the other side uh, when it was over with. Well, we have a, another interesting piece of work, which I guess is a reminder that as trials happen, judges continue doing their, their other day job uh, of handling these opinions. And you've got an injunction case sought after trial, which I thought had some some informative language maybe to tell people about overreaching. Uh, it, it, it was, and coincidentally, that was in another one of my cases, and it came out while we were waiting on the jury. So I had two good things happen that week. But yeah, this was an example. Of, the case was tried in front of Judge Gilstrap back in November. The plaintiff got a finding of infringement, willful infringement, and came back and asked for an injunction to exclude the competitor uh, the competitor's product from the market. We had a hearing on that two weeks ago, and the judge denied the request on Thursday of last week and said that the plaintiff hadn't met its burden to show irreparable harm or that monetary relief was inadequate and was very definitive both at the hearing and in the order on if you're going to seek injunctive relief at the end of the case, this is what you need to do all through the case to build a record for it. And he, he was particularly... Um, uh, emphatic about your expert came in and expressed a reasonable royalty opinion, that tells me that, that you could be made whole by an ongoing royalty. And, and the plaintiff had to respond to that at the hearing. But if, if you're going to be, if what you really want, especially in Judge Gilstrap's court, is injunctive relief, you need to study this order and see what the judge, how the judge expects you to conduct yourself during the litigation leading up to trial in order to come in and make a, a request that he sees as consistent with your argument that it's irreparable harm. Simply going for money damages the whole time, having, having uh, injunctive relief in your pleadings, and then after the case is over with, asking for an injunction uh, didn't work for the plaintiff in this case. And I know that I'm studying this opinion in cases where I am the plaintiff to make sure that how we are conducting ourselves is consistent with what Judge Gilstrap indicates the law requires. It's a it's a great reminder that injunctive relief isn't something tacked on when the case is won. It's it's built throughout the the entire case. So, I, as I as I read this, this is a roadmap for people going forward, not just in in this court but in all courts. I absolutely agree. It is it is a primer on how to raise this issue. Now, you may be in front of a judge that thinks the bar is a little lower, but this is a pretty good guide to building that case. If that's what your client really wants, if they really want an injunction at the end, 
you have to be acting consistent with the requirements of an injunction throughout the case. So, you know, the, the popular myth is that nothing ever gets stayed in Texas, but uh, we see a, a couple couple rulings from Judge Gilstrap once again proving that one wrong. This one, this was a venue argument with a, you know, a very targeted stay. Right. Uh, this is arising out of the case that we've talked about previously, where the issue is, is venue proper in the Eastern District based on uh, the, the existence and the conduct as potential agents of vehicle uh, dealerships. Um, Judge Gilstrap noted there are a couple of cases up in front of the Federal Circuit that he expects are going to provide guidance on that. So he granted a stay as to those as to the defendants that asserted improper venue arguments uh, awaiting the Federal Circuit's ruling on, on the improper venue claims. Now, not all of the defendants made those arguments. Uh, some of the defendants may be headquartered in the Eastern District. I know one is. Uh, so, but as to the ones that were asserting improper venue, he went ahead and stayed uh, those cases pending a decision from the Federal Circuit. Again, special case here because you have a specific improper venue argument. You know it's up in front of the Federal Circuit, and it's not going to be a very long stay before we get those orders back and find out whether improper venue uh, is, a, is a good defense or not. I, I love the the juxtaposition between how fast these cases normally move and a case that we've just talked about that had been sitting around for eight years. So uh, it's a good reminder of what typically Eastern Western District of Practice tries to avoid. Right, right. You, 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 some courts just philosophically move cases along uh, and resolve doubts against delay. Other courts view it differently. So cases are prepared in different courts. And that's a reason why people we all know that's why people file in different mm -hmm. courts, because if I'm the plaintiff, I probably don't want to be sitting around for eight years waiting for a trial setting. Well, Michael, every week we talk about new 12B6 filings. Is there a trend going on? Because they don't seem to be wildly successful, but people keep coming, coming to the Eastern District and Western District with these types of motions. I, I, the thing that I've run into on this, I absolutely agree. People do that. And I know from practicing and representing defendants, when you run into that situation, you look at the plaintiff's pleadings and you say, well, it's missing this, or maybe it's missing this or, or, or something. I could file a motion in every case, uh, but I know that in practice, I'm going to get the information in discovery anyway. Or, for example, there may be a bunch of defenses. Let's say I'm the plaintiff and the defendant has got just a bunch of boilerplate defenses. Yes, I can file a motion to strike them, but I know they're not going to go anywhere, so why waste the money on it? So it, it, I think a lot of lawyers don't adequately take into consideration that there is a financial cost to clients in filing motions if you don't really need what's done. I remember Judge Davis saying one time, this is about 15 years ago, he was on a panel uh, talking about patent litigation, and it came out from one of the other panelists that when a, a really full up, no holds barred round of summary judgment briefing in a big patent case would be about $150,000 in billing for the law firm. And that was a real eye opener to him that, that there was a, a definite reason why you might want to file briefing that maybe if you had to worry about money, you wouldn't. So that's one thing, uh, 
when we look at some of the, the orders like the one we're about to talk about, I question whether it's really worth filing a motion. If it's not hurting you, leave it alone. Well, this this motion had something that was a little surprising to me that goes right in that theme. There was an attempt to strike 30 paragraphs because they were immaterial. Right. It was 30 paragraphs of background information that the plaintiff included in the background facts of the case to explain what was going on. And the defendant filed a motion to strike parts of the, the complaint and provide a more definite statement. And Judge Gilstrap said, well, on part of it, you're asking me to dis dismiss the certain allegations because they're time barred. And I can tell that's a factual dispute. But on the part about the background material, he lays out the standard for whether something is immaterial or not and found that this is not immaterial. Um, it's not hurting anything. So again, and I kept thinking of, well, the client paid for all that money to brief the issue of whether 30 paragraphs that you didn't allege said something scandalous or improper right. should be taken out. I mean, I, I, you're redlining the plaintiff's complaint to no net benefit for your client is what I was kind of curious about. And the judge also, we don't see many motions for more definite statement. They put one in here and Judge Gilstrap said, that's only proper where the pleading fails to specify the allegations in a manner that provides sufficient notice. When you're complaining about a lack of detail, as long as you know what the claim is, I mean, if you say, well, they didn't say this and they didn't say this, you'll get that in discovery. So uh, this will be an order that I pull out if I have a if I have a co-counsel that says, well, the complaint's insufficient, doesn't give us enough information. And I'm like, well, it says we violate this patent. It says which claims it gives the I mean, that's all we need. We'll get the rest in discovery. Don't waste your money. Well, as we, we move out of the, the patent world, there's a vintage Rolex watch case that came out of the northern district that seems to illustrate something about equities and into how this court views latches. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting uh, case and not just because I'm a watch guy. So uh, I, I found the factual allegations interesting. What you had here was a defendant that sells pre-owned watch and they're, they started out as Rolexes. They may have some replacement parts, like I've got a watch that has a not original manufacturer band on it, or on some of the watches, they'll add diamonds to it, or they'll, or they'll take off all the markings, change the color, and then put the markings back on, which, by the way, violated uh, Rolex's trademarks. So the judge finds, yes, you've got a good trademark claim, but as a result of latches, you're not going to be allowed to disgorge the uh, defendant's profits. And the idea here is Rolex knew it was going on. It had even allowed him to obtain products. So they knew this was going on. And he said, if you want to shut it down, you certainly can shut it down. But because of your conduct, you're not going to be able to get uh, profits. Well, again, that's a, that's a useful thing to look at because off the top of my head, it wouldn't occur to me that I can win on the merits and then not have any damages. But uh, so this makes me think twice now about I need to be sure that I can show entitlement to damages in this case, uh, especially in face of uh, what here was a successful latches defense. I think you mentioned before other judges may go other ways, but this is a, a real, 
eye opener for fairness and how this court will view the, the balancing of equities around latches. So maybe judge specific, but important to come back to, to this judge. Plus a, an education on how Rolexes can not only be truly counterfeited, but kind of counterfeited. Yeah, when, when you add bling, Rolex considers that infringement. Well, as we move south, um, we've got a, again, staying out of the patent world, an interesting copyright infringement case that in many ways may be a, an illustration of uh, licensing and contract. Yes, uh, it was a very interesting case out of Judge Hanks in the Southern District of Texas. And the case here was an architect that had developed plans for a developer to use for a development. See if I can find more ways to say the word develop in the same sentence. Well, later on, she doesn't get the job doing the work. And later on, she sees the developer has started development. And when she looks at the plans, they look like they're derived from what she did. So she files a copyright registration application and, and files suit. Now, it's hard to fault someone about how this was handled because there are some indications that the uh, architect was actually proceeding pro se, at least by the time it got down to the briefing. But Judge H Hanks went through, granted some of the motions, denied some of the other ones. So this is a good explication of um, affirmative defenses like implied non-exclusive license, express non-exclusive license. Uh, the plaintiff had claims under the DMCA. He said, no, you can't have that, that either. But he was able to identify a factual dispute over the statute of limitations on a breach of contract claim. So to me, it's useful to go through and see there are a lot of, there's a checklist of things you have to make sure you have for a claim. And uh, from the plaintiff side, you got to make sure you've got those checked off. And on the defense side, look and see if there's one missing because you may be able to get a court to knock out those claims. Well, and, and as I read through this case, you, know, you could see the the passion it's one where both sides believe they were right one believing they were cheated the other believe they were the contract was clear but um, as you look at the contracts maybe a couple extra sentences could have kept this from ever going to, to court by setting expectations early on it's a it's a good and lesson that lawyers earlier in the process are better than litigators later in the process exactly and and your your comment about expectations is a good one i mean the whatever the client's expectations are or how much they think they were wrong, that may or may not be what the case is. And our job as lawyers, and I've, I've seen some lawyers in the last few weeks that are not doing this as well as they could, our job as lawyers is to see the other side of the case and realize um, as we, we don't want to be drinking our own Kool-Aid too much. You, you have to be able to tell the other side's story clearly enough to see where they might have a point. So the Western District of Texas had a, a jury trial that, that I was looking at in the, the verdict form itself. Very interesting to me because I, I often look for, would I say the jury hates you or, or loves you, where they just go down one side and completely vote against you. And I thought that's what was going to happen against Google in this case, but they only, they lost on some of the infringement claims and then lost everything else. So this really shows a jury that might have been struggling a little bit and had to work through some issues. Well, uh, uh, Wayne, I, actually, I was thinking of you when I was talking to the juror in our case, because I was hoping 
that your that your your hypothesis would be true that they would be mad at them at infringement so we went on invalidity and the witness said oh no 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 you got there you were over a preponderance on invalidity but we all agreed you hadn't gotten to clear and convincing and I'm like well I, I can't ask for more than that but yeah I agree this is a, a Waco verdict against Google the the jury found one of the three claims infringed found that none were invalid and then was asked the 101 question and found that none involved only activities which a person of ordinary skill would have considered well understood, routine, and, and conventional. So yes, you had a jury bouncing back and forth uh, as the facts led them to do apparently on which claims were infringed, whether any claims were invalid. And um, uh, so, so yeah, this is definitely one where both sides were, were picking up wins uh, as the jury worked through the verdict form. Well, and, and importantly, we shouldn't overlook the fact that this was a 101 that went to the jury. This may not be the first in Waco, it may be the second, but it's unusual that the jury found uh, that it was not, uh, did not involve activities that were well understood because off the top of my head, I don't recall a jury answering any, ever answering in the plaintiff's favor on that question in Marshall. It's always in the defendant's favor. So that was a very interesting data point to me uh, on what a jury will think on 101. That will be, this will be, you know, opening, closing to, to be studied, uh, because as far as I know, this is the first I can find where that, where it went all the way through, and you had this kind of split, infringement, validity, and 101. Um, I'm, I'm really curious on why this one went down the way it went down. Oh, I think so. It, it is one that's, that's going to be worth studying. Well, as we, we move on, um, I wanted to actually skip down to this motion to dismiss, I think the way you put it, was everything, um, <laughs> which, which would I love uh, in response to the overbroad motion to dismiss everything, the other side chose to oppose it 50 days late. Uh, right. So right. Uh, this, was, this was an irritating, irritating case for everybody involved, but fairly, fairly informative. Well, it, it is, and we actually have several of those cases this week, and we started out by talking about 12B uh, uh, motions to dismiss, and that's becoming pretty common to see these orders coming out where the judge, in this case, Judge Albright, grants part of it, uh, but not all of it. And in, on this case, Judge Albright dismissed the alternative theories of direct infringement and then the uh, uh, indirect theories that went with them. But then he goes through and he and he knocks out bits and pieces of the case, but he recognizes that it's difficult to properly allege induced infringement. So he says, you can come back in and amend later if you find the facts on that. And then we know his usual practice is going to be to dismiss, pretty routinely dismiss willful infringement claims with the understanding that the plaintiff can get discovery and then they can come back and amend to add it back in if they think they've got the facts, but he doesn't let the allegations sit there if a defendant objects. Well, and then just almost immediately after that, he issued uh, the opposite type of opinion on an Iqbal Twombly case. Right. Here again, you had another motion to dismiss indirect and contributory infringement claims and he, he sets out the standards, what you have to have, and concludes that the plaintiff's allegations in, that, in the case satisfy that standard. And again, over the last three or four months, we've seen numerous opinions from Judge Albright where he either finds the standard met 
or not met. If you want an opinion that says these allegations of direct infringement are not sufficient, there's a case for that. If you want a, a cases saying that indirect or contrib are or are not satisfied, there are cases for that. So there's a lot of data out there when you're trying to figure out, have I adequately pleaded these claims? Uh, has my opponent failed to adequately plead the claims so that a motion to dismiss is worthwhile? But again, keep in mind, if it's something that you know they're going to be able to fix, don't waste money on a, on a motion to dismiss. Ask the plaintiff to uh, agree to an, an amended complaint or go get the information in discovery. But we do now, we're getting a large number of opinions out from Judge Albright that, that tell us where you are based on what kind of facts you're able to allege. So Michael, from kind of the outsider's perspective, as I look at these opinions, it appears to me that Judge Albright's spending a significant amount of time drafting meaty, well thought out opinions and trying to really lay out standards, I, I presume in an effort to tell the bar where he stands on things so maybe people don't bring motions. Uh, when they're not necessary. Am I, am I reading too much into these kind of media opinions he's putting out? No, no, I think that's a, that's a very good read. Uh, whether he's doing it on purpose or not, it certainly is helping all of us uh, in understanding when he thinks you've got enough and when you think he doesn't. And, and this goes back to uh, two years ago this month, we had a meeting of his patent rules committee and several of the members of the committee said, Judge, it would be helpful to us in practice because at the time, Judge Albright didn't put out a lot of lengthy opinions. So uh, it, in contrast to other judges where you say, well, what does Judge so-and-so think about this kind of motion? Well, here's a dozen opinions. We were asking him, you know, if you'd give us uh, a written opinion on some of these issues instead of just granting or denying uh, in a uh, docket entry, that would help us to go back to our clients and our co-counsel and say, look, here's what the judge Here's what this judge expects to see. Have we got those facts or do we not? And maybe the pandemic delayed that a little bit, but we're now getting a large number of meaty, substantive opinions every week where um, I can go analyze those and make a much better decision whether to go file a motion or whether to call up the other side and say, okay, I'm not gonna oppose this. Uh, I'm gonna amend and then, and send you what I've got. And then you tell me if you wanna refile or not. Well, and I think a, an example of that could be this Verna case, which was a 12B6, 101 combination uh, that's, you know, I don't think went the way that they were hoping when they filed it, but the court laid out, I thought, a pretty nice roadmap for people going down this path and maybe even reminded people that he'd laid out a roadmap before, but this time he really means for people to follow it. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, this was an interesting, interesting case because you had the usually the usual twig ball allegations. You had a, a argument that an indirect infringement claim should be dismissed, but then you had the the situation where the plaintiff had said that they were changing their docketing procedures. They'd missed the response date, so they get an agreement to let them file a late response. But in the course of doing that. They said, what we really need to do is file an amended complaint. And the defendant came in and said, oh, no, wait, judge, strike the amended complaint. Don't let them amend. That wasn't part of our agreement. And Judge Albright said, no, 
at this stage, there's no reason to keep a party from amending this early in the case. So that's an argument I really wouldn't have made um, uh, if I were the defendant there. But then he looks at the allegations and he says, okay, you get there on this and on the other things, there are sufficient factual allegations. He said, as he has said numerous times with respect to the 101 allegations, when you file a motion prior to claim construction and before the close of fact discovery, it's gonna be a rare case where it's appropriate to resolve the, the 101 issue at the motion to dismiss stage. That um, We should have gotten that message by now that it's gonna be the rare case. So I, I'm a little perplexed at why we keep seeing motion to dismiss slash 101 uh, when the judge has told us repeatedly, it's gonna be a rare case where the 101 is ready at that, at that stage of the case. Now, a year ago, we weren't getting rulings on this. The motions were being stricken or there would be a simple denial on it. Um, now we're getting substantive rulings that are explaining again and again and again and again, here are the standards and you're just not there on the 101 yet. You may be later, you very well may be later. And as I tell people, a 101 may be a good defense, but not at this stage. Well, and that was the kind of what surprised me about this case. We, we've seen this before. Uh, the judge has gone to the effort of laying this particular standard out and yet patiently explaining it one more time. I wonder if there's a time when he won't be so patient. Well, yeah, that's coming up to two uh, decisions from now. Um, but but uh, no, I think that's correct. And I understand we all think we've got we've got really attractive 101 cases at the beginning. But looking at it from the court's perspective, he's not quite, he doesn't think they're ripe at that point. He thinks you need a, a particular showing to get there. And he's been very clear that I just don't see that you're there. Um, it, when I'm doing this, what I try to do is make clear to the court, I understand this is the general rule. We think we've got the situation where you can do it early on. Well, so Michael, for a case that I don't think I've seen anything and I couldn't find anything researching that that the judge has or Judge Albright has done before, there's an Apple case that came out with post suits, uh, willful infringement guidance and telling us where the court's coming down on this. So I, to me, this was a kind of a, a matter of first impression for, for this particular court. Oh, I think so. That That's what I thought was interesting about it in that case. The case is really, for, from my perspective, uh, the part that we're interested in is focused on the plaintiff's claims of willful and induced infringement. And Judge Albright sets out the standards for willful infringement and enhanced damages and says the plaintiff hadn't sufficiently pleaded pre-suit willful infringement or pre-suit indirect. But he said the plaintiff had sufficiently alleged it post-suit. And he lays out the different standards that Apple was proposing. They said, no, 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 you need to have an egregiousness pleading requirement and said, no, I'm going to follow this 2018 Delaware case uh, and say that, that there is not a requirement there. So that's something that I would certainly want to know if I were going to attack those allegations in his court, because it was a, a, an issue of first impression. And one thing we have seen in a lot of recent opinions from Judge Albright on 101 and on pleading requirements is he's surveying the case law out there. He's taking in, I mean, you're getting state-of-the-art arguments from defendants in that court that are saying you ought to do this, you ought to do this. 
this should be the standard here. And he's saying yes, no on that and giving people a lot of guidance as far as whether a holding that is not yet required by the federal circuit is one that he's going to adopt or not. Well, and that's that it's a good reminder for people to start looking for this. It seems like Judge Albright's heard what the bar was saying about him ruling from the bench uh, and putting things in, in minute orders, and he's trying to get guidance out there. But if you choose not to listen to that guidance, you get the next decision, uh, <laughs> which is the uh, the Rabjan the Rabjan decision. Oh, which, I love I love this court, order. The court spent a lot less time <laughs> issuing the order than the parties did briefing it. Yeah, to, to, to borrow a phrase from Shakespeare, if brevity is the soul of wit, this order is hilarious. One sentence denial of a motion to stay pending IPR. It, it, it's more, than a, it's more than, a, than a text entry on the docket, but only by the smallest amount. So I'm not, I, I don't know what the underlying uh, issues were here, but I thought it was... It was funny that in contrast to all these longer orders we've been talking about, this one got denied pretty quick. Which is an indication that the, maybe the court believes he's already told people how this is going to go based on this fact pattern. And there's no, no one made an effort to distinguish their fact pattern from his prior ruling. I think that's probably correct because we've got a lot of good case law on when a case ought to be stayed pending an IPR before there's been an institution decision. And it, it doesn't surprise me that the courts might be getting a little peeved that people don't seem to be paying attention to what they're saying in the more detailed opinions. So, Michael, one other procedural issue as we move on in terms of uh, the last few, I guess the last four weeks, we've had this alternative service uh, possibility, all the motions. Courts always been very generous with allowing alternative service makes you think that there's this pattern, Texas, Eastern District, Western District, Northern District are going to allow alternative service. And then we get this decision to remind you that no, they're going to allow it when it makes sense and it seems fair. Yeah, and, and that's one reason why I think this opinion is useful because the plaintiff had asked for alternative ser service. Let me email these people with the defendant, which is something we've seen judges permit repeatedly recently, and Judge Mansky says no. But the reason he says no is perfectly consistent with the prior opinions and reminds us of one a few weeks ago where uh, I think Judge Albright said no, and it is that you have to show that email service is necessary. If, if you show factually, I don't have any other way to provide service, there is not another alternative, you tend to get a good result. But in this case, Judge Mansky noted that the facts showed that there was a physical address. Uh, the, the, in the course of trying to figure out how to get them served, the plaintiff uncovered a physical address and then didn't tell the court why that physical address was insufficient. And Judge Mansky said, and this is the order I would put in front of anyone that wants alternative service, a general assertion that you can't determine the exact physical whereabouts is insufficient. You've got to have more than just a bare assertion that we don't know where they are uh, to explain why the physical address is insufficient for service. So again, this is not a rubber stamp of a request to email uh, a defendant's prior lawyers from a prior case. You've got to show that I've run to ground all the ways that I could have served them and this way is the only way that's left. Like the statute says, or 
rule or whatever it is, it has to be the form that is best calculated to provide service. And here, Judge Mansky could point to, this is not it. Well, Michael, I wanted to, to finish this week uh, with a motion for leave to file a late motion to transfer. That's not what you want your title to ever read when you're filing a motion. If you've got to put late in the title, you're in trouble. And this one kind of proves proves the point. Yeah, um, the, the, the situation here is this. The, the ground rule in Judge Albright's court is that you have a certain point, eight week up until, if you're gonna file a motion to transfer, you have to do that before, eight weeks before the claim construction hearing. In this case, nothing was filed until months after the court conducted the hearing and the defendant's argument was, well, hey, judge, you keep getting reversed by the federal circuit all the time, and they've changed the law, so uh, now we want to ask for a transfer. And Judge Albright concluded that the, the defendant's transfer motion wasn't timely, it wasn't filed by the date, it wasn't filed with reasonable promptness, as the Fifth Circuit case law says. And then he says, you haven't shown good cause for failing to meet it. Your argument is that all these federal circuit opinions that are granting the mandamus have changed the calculus in favor of transfer with respect to six to eight uh, factors, but the plaintiff didn't point out any change in the law in the opinions it was pointing out. It also, the opinions it was pointing to were not designated as precedential by the federal circuit. Um, now, we can disagree academically on whether the Federal Circuit decisions have actually changed the calculus. The point is, in this case, the, the defendant didn't identify how the calculus changed and, said, and, and came in and said, okay, as a result of these decisions, all these facts change and therefore you ought to transfer it. You would think they would do that, but they didn't. Uh, uh, so the plaintiff made a pretty persuasive argument from the looking at the outcome that none of the opinions provided a new calculus or even identified a change in the law. And Judge Albright points out, all the cases you're citing to me say, and the language is almost identical, as we have repeatedly held, as we have repeatedly held. Well, you can't go in and say it's new case law when the Federal Circuit said, this is something we previously held repeatedly. So, and so the court pointed out there's substantial inconvenience doing it here, so I'm not going to grant leave for you to file the motion to transfer late. So, I mean, th this is probably the same response that that guy on death row that filed the, uh, uh, the motion to transfer with the Western District got. You, you're, you just haven't given a reason for the court to do what you're asking it to do. What was interesting to me is that the judge took a lot of words to get to that. Could have just denied it and said it was late, but again, explained why. Agree. I, I absolutely agree. He explained very clearly, and, and it would have been easy to just deny it and say, nope, I'm not seeing good cause, but he went through and said, okay, what have you given me that justifies a ruling in your favor? You're telling me there are new cases, but they're not precedential. You're telling me to change the law, but you haven't told me how. You have to show me they would change the calculus, but you haven't even attempted to. So it, it's possible that you could come in and, and of course, Judge Albright has done this several times sua sponte recently, where after the Federal Circuit comes out with an opinion, he goes back, looks at a prior order, and sua sponte either denies a reconsideration, grants a reconsideration, or sua sponte transfers the case. We've seen that in a number of cases. 
but you have to be able to show that the cases require that. And in this case, they didn't file a motion. And all the cases they point to, defendants had timely filed motions. They waited till late in the case where, where the uh, uh, analysis was stacked against them and then didn't give them any facts to support a ruling. This, this smacks of a changed mind, not changed law. Yeah, I kind of thought that was obvious. <laughs> and I'll bet so, it was obvious to the court, too. Well, uh, kudos to the court for taking the time to address it uh, in detail. So uh, woe to those that try it again next time. <laughs> okay, Michael, well, with that, uh, that gives us another week in the books. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks very much. Have a good rest of the week. Take care.